This is the Scott Radley Show podcast, and on today's episode, we're going to be chatting about the government's proposed, planned, promised bailout or help of the media industry. Can the government give money to an independent media without people having the idea that the government is currying favor with that media? We're going to talk about the federal deficit and the debt as well, which is getting bigger and bigger and wasn't mentioned, really, not at least by the government, in the fall economic statement. Is that a concern? And Sunday is Grey Cup Day. Rick Zamperin joins us to talk about a bunch of things to do with the CFL. Mexican games, suspensions, whether the game maybe should be played on a different night of the week. Stick around for all that. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You're aware that yesterday, uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau gave his fall economic statement, sort of an overview and uh, a look ahead at what the federal government is going to do with your tax dollars. And in that statement, one of the things that he announced was that $595 million, $600 million, let's round it off, $600 million in tax breaks, uh, bailouts, funding, different measures are going to be directed towards the Canadian traditional media. This follows, of course, plenty of talk about, and and we know this, about how the media is struggling in the modern age. However, uh, it has also come with warnings from some people. Specifically, how can the media remain truly objective if one party is offering it millions of dollars in its platform, in its budgeting, when the other says, no, this is not really a good idea. How then does the media remain objective? How does the media give the impression of remaining objective? Is it fair? Is it fair when the CBC gets a billion dollars? Some people say the CBC has become a left-wing voice of the liberals. Some say not. Again, up to you to decide. But the perception, more than anything probably at this point, is the issue. So how can this work? Can it work? Paul Burton is the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. He joins me now. Paul, thanks for doing this today. No, glad to be here. Uh, we know right now, it's not a secret by any to anybody, we know things are challenging right now in the traditional media world, newspapers, radio, TV, magazines, everybody is trying to figure out how to make things work. And just as a bit of background, we've got a lot of options now for people to be able to get stuff for free online, cost nothing. And so why wouldn't you choose that over something you have to pay for. That's what you're fighting against, correct? I suppose, yeah. But, but, so, but how do you, even before bailouts like this, what is the answer for how you win that fight or how you hold your ground in that fight? Well, simply by producing good journalism and uh, uh, journalism that people can rely on, which is uh, an increasingly rare commodity these days, which I think... Uh, Many of the uh, organizations that are under threat uh, these days have proven that they can produce and have done that for the last century or more. So you have this track record. You have proof that these places, they've survived, they've done good work. Uh, you're trying to battle the people who want stuff just to get it for free, whether or not they it's credible or not. Um, but the question has become yesterday and, and for some time now about whether or not accepting government money in whatever form that would be is solving a problem or solving a problem by creating a new one. Is that a fair concern? I think it's a fair concern. Uh, journalists are 
always concerned about optics, uh, whether or not there's truth behind it. The optics matter, so we should care about that in this case, and the optics aren't perfect. Uh, that being said, uh, I don't think any of us who read papers or or consume news can imagine or would like to imagine a world without a, a robust news uh, environment in their in the communities that they live in. So, um, sure, the the concerns that have been uh, expressed are legitimate. Some of them are a little bit over the top, but uh, uh, I I I don't have an answer for the alternative other than it, at the moment it appears that uh, newspapers need some kind of help. Uh, uh, whether it's necessarily taxpayer money or simply an evening of the playing field for uh, for all the players is, uh, you know, that, that has been suggested by the industry and by various public policy reports to say, okay, well, Google and Facebook are getting the bulk of the advertising dollars um, and they're, they're indeed uh, getting it on the backs of, uh, you know, legacy uh, media, uh, but they're not uh, paying the same taxes or they're not uh, facing the same barriers that Canadian companies do. Yeah, and my understanding is, and you're certainly more familiar with this than I am in the business side of things, but that if you advertise on Google, you advertise on Facebook, you don't have to pay the same taxes. They don't have to pay the same taxes. So if you're a company, you're you're having exposure, but you're saving a lot of dough by not having to pay anything on that. Yes. And that would seem to be a, 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 well, on its face, Paul, would that not seem to be a rather easy solution then for the government to say... You if, know what? I, I, I agree. I don't know why they didn't do that. Just uh, just ch- charge them the same taxes if you want yeah. to advertise there. Yeah, but, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not by any means an expert. I don't know why they didn't. I'm sure they have a reason, and, and maybe it's more complicated than that, and maybe they're still studying it, and maybe they will do it. You know, the the question is when uh, things are getting dire for all news organizations. And uh, again, I, I, I don't want to live in a world where we don't have a, a robust media that keeps an eye on the powers that be, whether they're in government, uh, uh, education, uh, you know, medicine or law. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Paul Burton, editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator, about the roughly $600 million bailout the federal liberals yesterday announced for the media industry. And Paul, you write a column on Saturday. Uh, It's an excellent column. People should read it. It's often insightful about decisions that are made or things that are happening from your office and and things that happen in the editor's, as I say, decision-making process. And very often, one of the things that you refer to is the um, perception of something that is done compared to the reality. Why a story was run compared to another story. Why a story was, why this person was talked to rather than that. If we accept money, if the media industry accepts money from the government, will there not be a lot more of those questions though flooding into your office about those stories and why this was done and not that and the the perception that you owe someone something? I think that's a danger, but I am not overly concerned about it. Uh, you know, the magazine uh, industry and the uh, community or weekly newspaper industry has had access to the, what is it, the Canadian Periodical Fund for 
decades, if not uh, more than a century. And uh, I have not seen uh, either that concern raised by readers or consumers, nor have I seen any evidence that it has ever uh, uh, encouraged any journalist uh, at any of those publications to back down. And, uh, you know, th- that that doesn't mean the perception won't exist. You and I, Scott, know better that, you know, most journalists are not uh, influenced by any of that kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that, but, uh, uh, you know, the people will still uh, think the worst as as they do today. Is it possible to change that perception? I, I mean, I, I'm guessing the only way you do that is by running something that they agree with. Uh, but is it possible really to change those perceptions? Yeah, I think that the newspaper industry uh, in recent years is doing a lot uh, to change those perceptions and tell people that we're human like everyone else, but we do care about journalism and truth and facts and and uh, balance. Uh, you know, uh, these are uh, top of the list for us, and, and we trade on uh, the reliability and trust, uh, the reliability of our news and the trust that we have with our readers, and uh, we're not about to sacrifice that. Um, beyond that, I think that uh, some of these things are necessary at the moment. They may not be necessary in the future. The, you know, we're we're in a in a in a very bumpy uh, part of uh, journalistic history now, and uh, hopefully, uh, if we get some help getting through this, uh, we won't need it in the future. Uh, that's a that's that may be optimistic. But. Well, but but there was a piece in the wording though that I of the announcement from. Uh, the finance minister that really caught my attention, uh, it probably caught, perked up your ear as well. I think it perked up a lot of people's ears. The government says the package, this package, this relief package will help, quote, trusted news organizations. Who decides who is trusted? Well, that's the problem. That is a, a problem. Who decides and what is it that these tr- so-called trusted news agencies do to... Um, um, earn that trust. Earn that trust, yeah. So, uh, for sure. Optics and optics are everything, but uh, we may be beyond that. I'm not sure. The does this lead to a requirement that there be a definition of who is a journalist? Well, that, that is, as you and I know, that's an impossible definition, uh, and I hope not. However, uh, uh, I you know I think it might be easier to uh, not notwithstanding the optimi- optics I think it might be easier to de- determine who is trusted and who is consistent consistently producing reliable uh, truthful news. There is one other thing, and we only have a couple of minutes left here, but. Uh, <laughs> Something really stood out. You mentioned Google and Facebook as two examples. There is something really hypocritical, I have to say, about this as well, and that is the Globe and Mail pointed out today, most of the tens of millions uh, and sometimes into the $100 million range that the federal government spends on advertising every year is spent on Google and Facebook. And Paul, once again, it seems to me there are much simpler answers to this. If the federal government just put some, that money into local newspapers, into Canadian newspapers, radio, TV. That seems to be the same amount of money. That almost solves the problem in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that has been suggested uh, as as some of the other things we've talked about uh, this evening has been already suggested to the government, uh, uh, you know, along with uh, a couple of dozen other apparently or seemingly reasonable steps they can take. 
Uh, so again, uh, I'm at a loss to know why uh, some of that stuff hasn't been adopted or some of that wasn't announced uh, this week by Bill Morneau. But again, um, I'm not in the government. I'm and I'm you know I'm an editor of a newspaper, but hardly an industry expert. Paul Burton, editor in chief of the Hamilton Spectator, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us continue talking about the federal government and its economic statement. Totally different topic, though. We talked about the media bailout, for better or worse. And I'd love to hear from you, by the way, whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing in that we hopefully can help the credible traditional media. The question part is, can you do that without the perception of being bought? That's the conservatives point. They say this is simply, it's an election year and you're now buttering the bread of the media to try and get positive coverage. Can you do it without doing that? Radley at 900chml.com. Love to hear from you on that one. But there was another part of the economic statement yesterday that wasn't really mentioned. And by not being mentioned, it was rather loud in its absence. A lot of people mentioned it afterwards, and that is the federal debt, the federal deficit. Still growing, still climbing, no sign of any efforts being made really to bring it down, no plan. That's what's being pointed out right now. Yeah, we have this debt, we have this deficit. Where's the plan? No plan announced on how we're going to bring it down. Want to chat about that a little bit with our good friend Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. Just before we get into this, you know what? Can we go back and just talk about something very basic that I think most people really don't understand, and I'm throwing myself in a lot of ways into this category. We talk about the national debt all the time. We talk about borrowing money and how much we owe. I've talked to a bunch of people who have no idea. They've made it clear. They have no idea who it is that we actually owe? Who is Canada borrowing money from that we then have to pay this money back? Who are our lenders? Well, some of them uh, is actually ourselves. So let me see if I can explain that to you. What a government does, whether it's the Ontario government or the federal government or perhaps even something like the city of Hamilton does, is they'll issue bonds or debentures. And those bonds have a... a uh, uh, a value, let's say they're a $1,000 bond or a $10,000 bond, you buy them in those increments, and they promise you a return on your purchase of some interest rate. And that's what we call the debt. That, that's what's the debt servicing charge on that. Now, those bonds typically have a relatively short time frame. They might be one year, two years, three years. And at the end of the three years, those bonds get paid off, but new bonds get issued, and we just keep rolling it forward. It's the exact same thing that corporations do. They have bonds as well. Now, who's interested in that kind of debt? It doesn't normally pay really great, really great returns on investment, but organizations that sit on a lot of cash that need to generate something on that cash, like pension funds or, say, insurance companies that have a lot of money, they want to grow that money, but they need to grow it in a very, very safe way, they're the people who buy those bonds. So the point, though, is that if I buy these bonds, if you buy these bonds, if an insurance company or a, a pension fund company buy these bonds, there is an obligation to pay this money back. It's not an ethereal, no, no. intangible thing. We are required to pay this back. Right. And, of course, how, sometimes what happens is, especially if our budget is not balanced, you know, I needed $10,000 this year. Oh, next year I'm going to borrow 11000 
to pay off the 10000 but I also need another 1000 on top of it. And that's why the debt, the total debt, keeps growing. We just keep rolling it over and borrowing just a little more and selling a little more. And for the moment, people are more than happy to buy the bonds because uh, we've never defaulted on them. So if you can think back to when Greece was having its economic problems, one of the reasons why I was having problems is it turned to those people who bought the bonds and said, you know, I, I know I owe you some money, but I don't really have it here to pay you. Can, can, I, uh, can I talk about something else, a little deal on the side? And that's, of course, what gave their credit rating a very low score. Our credit rating in Canada, not the top of the chain, I think that's called triple A+, but we're something like double A+, because to date we've never defaulted, never even come close to defaulting. And what would happen if we in Canada get to the point where we are unable to pay our share of the debt right now? Well, like every other uh, uh, country that has debt, uh, there isn't like a bank who's suddenly going to foreclose and I'll take the artwork in the National Gallery, thank you very much, or, or the Parliament buildings, that would look like a nice condo development for me. Uh, normally what happens is then you would negotiate with those creditors and say, all right, what terms can we come to? And that often includes, uh, I'll switch for a while to just paying the interest on the money, but you've got to keep extending me the cash a little longer rather than paying it all back. And you'd have these terms. Now, in the case of Greece, again, who got into these troubles, one of the, one of the things that the European Central Bank tried to do was what they called a haircut, and that was to get people who owed the bonds of Greece to just forgive some of that money and say, I know, I, I know you owe me $20 billion, but tell you what, give me $10 billion, we'll call ourselves even. That didn't go over that well, although that really would have helped Greece out an awful lot. Now, we're, we're nowhere near that kind of a circumstance. And, and why that is, Scott, is if you think outside of the government, you think of big corporations, most big corporations are levered, meaning that every big corporation has some amount of debt, and they carry it forward almost in perpetuity. We have a measurement for that in business. It's called the debt-to-equity ratio. And as long as you have uh, uh, more equity, more value invested in the company than you have debt, normally no one gets too worried about it. Now, for a, a country, it's not that ratio. It's the debt-to-GDP ratio. What is your economy generating every year? And because look how healthy that is, as long as you keep that ratio constant or even declining, then everyone thinks everything's fine. It's when it reverses and suddenly your debt-to-GDP ratio is climbing, that's when people start to get worried. And the trouble that we have, or any country is going to have, but especially in the Western world, it seems, is that we like two things for sure. We like more stuff, and we don't like to pay for more stuff. But those seem to be, if we're going to get rid of the debt ever, those seem to be the two options. You either cut stuff or you tax more to bring in more money. Well, in, uh, look, in fairness to the, the Chrétien years, uh, when John Chrétien was prime minister and Paul Martin was a uh, finance minister, what they did was they trimmed back a bit on the spending, and at some point the government actually ran a surplus, meaning it collected more money from all of us to run the company country than it really needed. And what they said we'll do at that point is we'll use half of that surplus to pay down the debt, and for a while in the 1990s, uh, we were actually reducing the total amount of debt outstanding. We were retiring some of that debt, and then they said the other half we'll put back into programs. This, this is not an attitude shared by the current Liberal government. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Marvin Ryder about our debt, our national debt. It was a topic that was not really mentioned in the economic statement yesterday, probably intentionally, but it certainly has been mentioned by many people subsequent to the economic statement. Uh, Marvin, it is 
Now, I understand that whole, your household and the government are two different things, but it's a common financial axiom, I think, that says that you save when times are good so that when times get rough, you have some money tucked away to help yourself along. Sure makes sense to me. Well, we've had a period of prosperity here in this country, and yet we have also added way more to our debt and to our deficit. What happens if we know a recession is coming, we don't know when, but it always comes. There's always going to be a recession down the road. When we haven't saved when things have been good, when we've been spending like this, what happens if times turn tough? Mm-hmm. Well, just to remind you back in 2007-8 what happened, Stephen Harper and then Finance Minister Jim Flaherty were on a route where they were reducing and reducing and reducing the deficit, and they were almost at the point that the annual deficit, not the overall debt, but the annual deficit, the amount being added, the deficit was almost down to zero. And then 2007-8 hit, and we had a massive recession that re- it was very stubborn. It went on for three quarters. In the United States, it went on for six quarters. Um, and they said, gosh, what do we do? Now, when a recession hits, the private sector, the business sector, tends to cut back on their spending. So they're not buying as much inventory, they're not hiring as many people, uh, they're not expanding their plants, what have you. So there's a real hit to the economy, and traditional theory is when the recession happens, governments step forward, they go out, they borrow money to fill that void temporarily, just for a year or two until things start to get better, business spending increases, and then they can withdraw the support. Just to keep money flowing through the system. Yeah, and just, yeah just to keep everything flowing nicely and smoothly. Now, to give you a sense of this, Back when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister and we hit that recession in 2007-8, they borrowed, get this, $55-0 billion to help stimulate the economy this year. And you, you could almost see Stephen Harper's face as he was making these announcements and gritting and grinding his teeth because <laughs> he'd worked so hard to, to balance the budget, but he had to do this. And it was the right thing to do, fortunately, because he'd run so many years of deficits in the single billions of dollars, you know, $2 billion, $3 billion, $5 billion, $50 billion wasn't that hard to do for a while. Unfortunately for him, it wasn't just a one-year thing because that recession just refused to really end easily. We did get out of recession, but we weren't growing like we were supposed to. So there was, again, some priming of the pump, if you will, by the federal government. But by, say, five years ago, the economy was chugging along. Again, not quite where we wanted it to be. That's growing at 2% a year, but maybe 1.6%, 1.7% a year, and yet we were still stimulating it. Uh, Justin Trudeau, very clearly in his campaign for three years ago, said, I want to come in, and I don't think the economy is still as healthy as it should be. I want to give it one more big shot in the arm. And you might remember his shot in the arm involved infrastructure, that we were going to spend money on new roads, new bridges, new other sorts of things. And, and not just a billion here or $2 billion. It was going to be $100 billion over a relatively short period of time. I think it was six years, maybe seven years at most. There wasn't any talk in this update yesterday about infrastructure spending, but there still is a lot of money going into the economy. And the major source of the deficit increase yesterday, announced by Mr. Morneau, uh, had had nothing to do with infrastructure. It was a response to the Donald Trump tax cuts of last year, where Donald Trump, to try to woo some American business and get them to either invest more in the United States or even return to the United States, said, I'm going to slash your marginal tax rates. I'm going to give you some accelerated ways to write off investment. And that really that really changed the playing field where we had been lower than the United States and frankly still are, but the gap was quite different. 
for the better part now of a year, Minister Morneau was was lobbied to do something about that, and I actually thought he was going to wait till the spring to do it so he could just ride that into the federal election next fall. But he decided to jump yesterday, and one of the reasons why the total debt went up nearly $14 billion, spread over four years, was the cost of these tax cuts. If I'm going to collect less from business, but I'm not going to change my spending, I've got to make it up somewhere, and he decided to borrow more money. This will certainly be a topic of discussion in next year's election. I had to look this up today, but when Justin Trudeau's father, when Pierre was prime minister, he took uh, office in 1968. The debt was $18 billion. When he left office for the final time in 1984, it was over $200 billion. And you talked about GDP. That went from a 24% of GDP to a 46% of GDP. It, is it a fair comparison with what Justin and what Pierre have done? Well, Justin's in a different ballpark, because if you're to look at GDP today, it's an even much bigger number. And interestingly, in the finance minister's revised estimates of, of uh, deficits for the next four or five years, even though it's $14 billion over three or four years, basically 2 or $3 billion a year each year, he's able to freeze, keep the debt-to-GDP ratio pretty well fixed, and at a rate lower than that 42%, I think it's running around 30, 31% of GDP, now, here's the only little wrinkle. Great that you're doing this. Great that you're helping the business community. The NDP are coming at them for, you know, corporate tax handouts. Uh, why do this for business? Help the little guy. Of course, the conservatives are saying is too much or too little too late. But here's the thing. If that recession hits in the next three or four years, and they're normally 10 years apart, and it's been 10 years, so it's not crazy to think that it might, they've got very little wiggle room at that point with that debt-to-GDP number if they don't want to go over it. So what are they going to do? And they're taking a real gamble that if they stick handles the economy correctly and nothing big comes in from the outside, they might not have a recession in the next three or four years. But that's a real gamble that they're taking. Uh, yeah, because uh, uh, the other part I was reading is that uh, there are those who say that a downturn in the economy could take our debt to a trillion dollars by 2023. I don't know if that number is true. That's a based on a $50 million additional hit or $50 billion additional hit. Um you know, we can, we can talk about this another day because we're sadly out of time, but very quickly, I don't know if a trillion dollars scares anybody else, but that sounds like a very big number. You know, I appreciate it does, Scott, but just let me help you out a little bit. So th- this change in the taxes that Mr. Morneau is doing is adding roughly $2, 3000000000 billion to our debt. Donald Trump's adjustment to the taxes in the United States added a trillion in just the last year. Our, our debt management is, is sterling in comparison to the United States. And I think what Mr. Morneau is also gambling on is that some of the changes that Trump made may not be sustainable, especially with the Democratic House. If those get rolled back, there's less pressure on him to, to follow through on all these, and he can readjust in a couple of years. None of these measures are permanent. They're all temporary. So we may again get past all this. Trillion dollars is all relative. I tell you seriously, our economic circumstance is much better than the United States. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A Sunday is the Grey Cup. CFL season is done, will be done. Seems like we just got started. I I remember chatting about training camp. Doesn't seem like all that long ago. Uh, We're we're wrapping it up now. Heading into the off-season where the Ticats apparently will have 34 free agents. That's a talk for another day. That's a lot of free agents. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin, who knows the CFL as well as anybody in this great land of ours. Sir, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, you get some dinner, you get off the air, and you get something in your belly, and you're ready to go again? 
I am uh, fully loaded and uh, ready to talk some football. Uh, do you want to start with the good news or the bad news? Where do you want to go today to begin? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a positive guy, so let's start with the good news. All right. Uh, let's start with the good news. There is lots of talk this week at Grey Cup land, apparently out in Edmonton, that this Mexico experiment with the CFL is actually really going to be a thing that they may in fact be having some games down in Mexico as early as next year. Uh, good idea. Uh, I was waiting for some good news here. So <laughs> listen, uh, I think it's a good idea if the league can make some money, cause that, that always helps. Uh, if they can cultivate not only a fan base, but maybe some talent down there that, that can, join CFL rosters, uh, if uh, any of the uh, officials or off-field personnel uh, catch the CFL bug uh, in Mexico, that's currently with their professional league down there, and, and make this game better. I think, it's, I think it's a positive only if it makes our game better, and that is the big question, whether or not it's actually going to do so. The yeah the the concern I think a lot of people have is we all remember the American expansion and yes. still get a little queasy whenever we now start to think about extending beyond our borders and so if you're right if this thing can actually do something positive super but can it is the question well yeah I mean that's the thing what 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 is the CFL's end goal is it to expand its global fan base. Even even if that's the case, okay. So they sell, I don't know, a few more jerseys in Mexico. Uh, uh, you know, what about a TV gonna, contract? Well, even then, I mean, how lucrative is that going to be? Is it going to be in pesos? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I I applaud the CFL for reaching out and thinking beyond its borders, but I think there is a limit to, especially the financial uh, windfall that can result in any kind of deal with. Uh, Mexican TV or or their uh, professional football league, I, I think it only goes so far. But I mean, again, if you're cultivating uh, the fan base, uh, you're going to get you know those those merchandise sales jacked up, which I can't really imagine would be would be anywhere close to what uh, would make it a worthwhile adventure. But if they drum up a future star that came from Mexico and started the CFL, I think that would be a great story. But, I mean, really, at the end of the day, how how much is this going to help the league? I can really see it hurting the league more than helping the league because if, uh, dare I say it, if they expand to, the, to Mexico with a CFL southern team uh, and it flops, then, you know, this league looks bad, and I don't really want to see that. Well, we've seen that kind of experimental expansion the Canadian Women's Hockey League has done something very interesting which is they've put a team in China and the teams will go over there and play a few games against the Chinese team and then like twice a year the Chinese team comes over and barnstorms through all the teams all the leagues here with the idea that let's build let's cultivate a base I interestingly there it seems to actually be working I don't know with the with Mexico having so much access to the NFL I don't know that it works here I just don't know if it works the same way. Yeah, I, I, I really have my doubts. I mean, Mexico is a football nation, and that's you know European football or South American football, if you want to be more accurate in their Foot regard. Football. No, the, the, yeah, the, the, the soccer uh, is their number one sport. And you know, there's a, a bunch of other things you're going to be interested in before they say, hey, you know what, I really am a fan of this CFL game. I mean, they're probably going to pick the NFL first because they've been exposed to that for a lot longer, a lot of... Football fans down there have already allegiances to their favorite 
NFL teams, whether it's, you know, the Cowboys or the Raiders or, you know, whatnot, whatever the case is. So to include not only another sport, but another nation in their kind of cultural sporting uh, fan bases, I think it's a real tough nut to crack on, on a grand scheme. I mean, they can go there and have a tiny bit of success, but, you know, realistically, I don't really see this being a, a, a financial, uh, you know, like winning the lottery in, in, a, in a new nation. Another report out of the Grey Cup week this week that I heard about was they are now seriously discussing whether to move the schedule up a week. That, to me, seems like if you can get the Grey Cup game away from American Thanksgiving week, uh, you're on to something. And a little bit, maybe a little bit warmer, although it's all relative. Um, what do you think about starting earlier and, and ending earlier? I, you know, from a fan perspective, <clears throat> I, I think it makes a lot of sense. For a couple of reasons. Number one, you're not playing a championship game at, you know, the end of November when it's, you know, even here today, if the Grey Cup was here in Hamilton, it would be, you know, five degrees and a chance of rain on Sunday. Uh, or you can have, you know, maybe plus 15 and, you know, some, some better weather. So from a fan perspective, in the stands, uh, not having to bundle up and wear 17 layers and, mm you know, those hot pockets in your in your coat and the scarf and the whole. I mean, you want to be comfortable, especially when you're paying uh, elevated prices to watch a championship game. I think you want to be a little more comfortable. The second part about it is, well, there's probably really three parts about it. The new league in the NFL or in the, in the U.S. that is going to compete with the CFL for talent of future CFL and NFL stars is going to be starting after the Super Bowl and kind of runs, you know, for a few weeks. So, I think starting the CFL season a little sooner, yeah, it might exclude some teams from, uh, you know, obtaining some of these guys in this new league. But I think it might also um, lead to a little more competition in, in terms of uh, salaries for players. You know, can they compete with this new league? That'll remain to be seen. But I think maybe one of the more important points I'm trying to make is you move the season up, the Labor Day game becomes that much more meaningful because it's now later on in the season, whether it's you know, a few weeks or a month and a half, whatever the case is, it's closer to the end of the year. Uh, it's not right smack dab in the middle where, uh, you know, if you win or lose, it's not the end of the season. But towards the end of the season, those games mean a lot more. And I think Labor Day would be that much more outstanding. Jumping around here, uh, Third Down Nation, which is a website about the CFL, reported today that the playoff TV numbers for the playoffs last weekend for the, the uh, Eastern and Western finals took an absolute nosedive. The Eastern final dropped 50% in viewership from last year. Uh, this was tr- this was Hamilton versus Ottawa. Now, of course, the year before it was Saskatchewan involved, which is always a big, big number, but it was down 38% from when it was Ottawa and the Eskimos back in 2016. Is that a concern or is that just a, oh, you know what, these things happen once in a while. If it's not the favorable matchup, if it's not a good day, if it's whatever happens, so be it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd be a little concerned. I don't think it's the end of the world. I'm, I was just trying to remember what else is going on other than, you know, the NFL. I'm not sure there was anything, you know, massive on, on television sets. But not only that, you're not only dealing with whatever's on at that time, but you're dealing with, uh, the Netflixes of the world and everything else that has that has come to be that's part of our society, uh, and yeah, if Saskatchewan's playing in any game, those numbers are going to be a, a little elevated from you know, the year before. It might skew the numbers a little bit, but 
I think if you're for, if you know you're a higher up in the CFL, if you're Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, you're looking at that number, and the question has to be why. I mean, these are two uh, historic teams, at least in terms of cities. You know, Ottawa with the Red Blacks is a new team, but obviously an old CFL uh, city. Uh, you know, for an Eastern Championship in which they've had some bad blood and some great matches in the years gone by. Uh, I would think it would be yeah a little troubling that those numbers are down by that much. One of the things that Three Down Nation says in here, and I think it's a very valid point, is the NFL's numbers this year, they've had a rebound. It was a few years of pretty brutal TV numbers for the NFL, whether you blame that on Kaepernick or whatever else. Uh, NFL, they're bouncing back, and yet the CFL in seems to insist for years now that it will run its entire year on Thursday nights, Friday nights, and Saturdays until it gets to the playoffs and then decides, yeah, let's take on the NFL head-to-head. And that mm-hmm. seems like such a poor idea. It always has seemed like a poor idea to me. Well, I mean, historically, the CFL has always had those championship games, you know, on those Sundays. And I guess the league just really didn't care in terms of, you know, combating against the NFL. It was a different game. There are, you know, very similar fan bases, but uh, you're always going to get those hardcore CFL fans. It's it's the fringe fans that you're losing now to the National Football League and obviously other things. Uh, I, I've always been of the belief that, you know, the CFL should go to a one-day schedule. We're playing all our games on Friday or all our games on Saturday nights uh, and then keep it consistent so that TV viewers, so that fans who are going to these games know that every week, uh, they know when to tune in, where the games are going to be, and just simplify things. The, the, the NFL, I know, has expanded to other days, Thursday night football, uh, you know, Saturdays uh, in, in the last couple of weeks of the season, you know, certain holidays. Obviously, today being Thanksgiving in the U.S. is a, a natural tie-in. Monday night football was, you know, amazingly popular when it burst onto the scene. The CFL, uh, I think once especially, they get Halifax into the fold. They have an even schedule, five teams in each division. I think they got to pick a day and say, all right, this is this is now the new norm. And come playoff time, hey, if you want to stick with Sundays, that's fine. Just keep them all on the same day. I, look, I, I know this flies in the face of tradition. I know it's what it's been what's been done in Canada forever. Could you imagine though a Grey Cup on a Friday night? I, honestly, I, I I think that would be spectacular. The whole idea of the Grey Cup that we keep being told, and I and I understand the history and everything else, is it supposed to be a national party? why would Friday night not work? There's nothing else going on sports-wise. It's party night anyway. To me, I would love to see them try that. Take it off a Sunday. It takes away your probably your nine-hour pregame show, but honestly, who cares? That stuff is junk anyway, most of it. Put it on Friday night and let's see what happens. I think it could work great. I think it would be spectacular, especially in the host city, because you have... Grey Cup week festivities all week long anyways, you know, with the player arrivals and, uh, you know, the the, the uh, player awards, which are on tonight, uh, different, uh, you know, every team has their own kind of location and hotspot. I think that would be fantastic to have a Friday night bash for uh, the Grey Cup. That'd be phenomenal. I don't think they're going to follow it, but the other thing is, I no. mean, if they, if they want this to be a giant party, and they do, they always tell us, I mean, I think they've called it for years the national, the great national drunk if you're going to have it as a party, why not have Saturday as a chance to recover and then you can watch football and get home? And I mean, honestly, I, I, I think it would work. But a couple things quickly before, we, um, before we're before we done here. 
the uh, freak. What's his name now? I'm trying. Jonathan Rose. Jonathan Rose. How can I forget Jonathan Rose? Guy who got kicked out of the game against the Ticats for pushing the official. Uh, I'm not going to forget his name again, of course, only right now. Uh, Jonathan Rose is suspended for the Great Cup game, but says he's going to appeal, and apparently they can't do the appeal prior to the Great Cup game, so he is going to be able to play. Should he be, or should there be some sort of system the CFL has that says, under these circumstances, we will convene our panel of justices and decide on this prior to this game? I, I can't believe that an appeal can't be heard before the Grey Cup. We've had a week to decide this. It wasn't like he was suspended today or even yesterday. You know, we knew this uh, pretty much right after the game. Uh, for <laughs> for this appeal not to be heard is just atrocious. And the league once again looks Mickey Mouse. So you have a player who. Whether he knew the official was there or not, uh, did a big, big mistake by putting his hands on the official. Not only that, you know, throttling the official and almost, uh, you know, ending up on on the sideline heater. Yeah, almost uh, incinerating the official. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, thank goodness that you know, the official wasn't you know seriously injured. But I mean, if he was seriously injured, would would this would he still be allowed to play? I don't know. I think I think this one's pretty cut and dry. You put your hands on an official. Whether you mean it or not, uh, it should be automatic, no chance of appeal whatsoever. This sets a, a, a horrible precedent. I mean, because it's a championship game, uh, I don't think he should get off at all. I think this the league should have been able to put its foot down to say, uh, appeal process or, or not, you know, this is just not happening. And it's just too bad that they can't. I don't mind the appeal. I, I think you should be allowed to have the yeah, appeal. I just sure. can't understand. It's the only game left in the league. What what else do your people who hear this, what else are they tied up with at this time that they could not hear this appeal? And, I mean, how many hours are in a day? How long does it take to make a decision? Review the tape, talk to all parties. I mean, that, that takes a few hours, really. Talk to Jonathan Rose, talk to the officials, talk to a couple of the other officials that were there, maybe some uh, players in the Ticats, so what uh, transpired, review the tape, and you're done. I, I I simply don't understand it. Yeah, this is not a case where this was not on tape, where this is a mystery thing that happened. You've got video of it. You've got evidence of it. So you can actually put your eyes on it. And all you have to do, I would think, is call him in and say, explain this. Explain what we're seeing. Is there something we are not seeing here? And then go back and review and look for that thing that he says that is the real reason for this or whatever else. But if you push an official and you can't say that I had a seizure that caused my arms to fly out or something, uh, I'm sorry, you're sitting. That, it, it seems to it's a very easy one, Rick. It seems to me I I can't figure this one out. Yeah. Last thing before we let you go, mm-hmm. if Calgary loses on Sunday, that oh, would boy. be three straight Grey Cup losses. Three times they'd been favored. Even though, the, I mean, the CFL is a league where every team has one championship, so it's not like the Buffalo Bills. But what it, what what does it do to Calgary? What is the reputation of the Calgary Stampeders if they lose this game? Uh, they would be, I'm not even sure lovable losers would be in the equation. They would be a really good team who just could not win the big game. I think that would be the stench that would follow Bo Levi Mitchell and Dave Dickinson, at least until they won another championship, which, I mean, they could do next year, too. Um, I think just like the Bills, you know, who lost four straight, 
they were, uh, you know, a team that just could not win when all the chips were on the table. And for one reason or another, they haven't been able to win the last two. And as you mentioned, they were favored in both. And they probably should have won, well, at least won, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, they would be, without a doubt, they'd be haunted if they lost once again. But, I mean, nothing's guaranteed in sports. You, you As Herm Edwards said, you play to win the game. And there's another team on the other side of the field that wants it just as bad as the Calgary Stampeders. Yeah, you know, though, I'm with I, I, everything you say is bang on, but for not so much this year, but in previous years, the Stampeders have been the dominant team that has steamrolled the rest of the league until they got to that game, and then all of a sudden made, were made to look very, very, very average. And what I find really interesting about this one, we've heard rumblings that Bo Levi Mitchell may want to take a crack at the NFL. I don't know how you sell yourself as a winner, even with all the winning that he's done, if the three times in a row you've gotten to the championship game, you've been made to look exceedingly pedestrian. Mm-hmm. That that yeah, becomes that's, tough. That, that's a hard sell for an NFL team to uh, you know buy into. Yeah, his regular season record is phenomenal, one of the best of all time in the Canadian Football League. But when he says, so oh, by the way, I've only won one out of four championship games, you know, the question is, well, what happened? <laughs> and then those GMs and, you know, player personnel can can review the tape. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be devastating for Calgary. They have feasted on some of the lesser likes in the, in the CFL uh, over the last number of years, and they've beaten some good teams as well. But, yeah, they've been, you know, the model franchise, top to bottom. They're a well-run organization. Uh, they have great players year in and year out. When they lose guys, they fill them with, you know, other fantastic talent. Um, well-coached team, uh, you know, there, there's really no excuses. They just have not been able to win uh, the ultimate prize. It just Something else just dawned on me. What does it do to the reputation of the Hamilton Tiger Cats if Ottawa wins for the second time in, what, three years under Marcel Desjardins, a GM that they fired? <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't know that that looks too good either. Well, you know, ever since uh, the, the Cats lost to Ottawa in the fifth quarter and even throughout this week, there have been so many fans that have said, listen, I now hate the Red Blacks more than the Argos. And it's understandable because, you know, Hamilton has beaten Toronto, uh, you know, handily over the last number of years, whereas the Red Blacks have owned the Cats, including their two big playoff wins in, in Eastern Finals. So I can see how those kind of, uh, fans are kind of you know switching their their hatred from one team to another. Um, yeah, it would you know would paint the Tie Cats in uh, in a bad light, especially after cutting ties with Marcel and you know letting him go. And uh, you know ever since this, well, I mean even way before that, uh, this team has struggled uh, to to win games and and obviously not win a championship since '99. So on Sunday, if Calgary wins, Hamiltonians will be driving around the downtown honking their horns. <laughs> Well, maybe not quite, but uh, close enough, close enough. <laughs> Rick Zamprin, I wish we had a fifth quarter after the Grey Cup. I really do. I'm going to uh, miss the well, fifth we quarter. we would if Hamilton got there. Well, I know, but I, you should do it anyway. In, in future, we should have it anyway, regardless, just so we can have another week of the fifth quarter. <laughs> With everybody just a little keyed down, ratcheted down a, a notch because Hamilton was not playing. It'll be an interesting I'll, one. I'll make a note of that. Please do. Uh, Rick Zamprin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for all the work you did this year on the fifth quarter. It was always excellent. Uh, anyone who didn't tune in, you're lost. They're all up online. You can go and yeah, I, I don't yeah, know how, how would that go to listen to all 18 fifth quarters in a row? There's a few where I describe them as epic because the callers are so off the wall. It's just incredible. And the number of downloads of the podcast express that. 
so yeah, go to Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, wherever you download your podcast and download uh, the Fifth Quarter Podcast. Instead of watching the 9 or 10 or 12 hour pregame show for the Grey Cup, which is filled <laughs> with go. filler and nothing, just listen to all 18 episodes of the Fifth Quarter and then watch the game. You'll be much happier. Rick, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.